All right. Thank you, worship team. Wow, it's good. Good, good to worship in the presence of the Lord today with you all. Uh, If you have a Bible, turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13. Today is going to be the last Sunday that we are in our Apocalypse Now series until the fall. We'll pick it up again in the fall, but we're going to break now for the summer, and part of that's just the logistics of being outside. Part of that was just kind of feeling like Revelation's a wonderful book, but it's dense and it's intense, and maybe we just can take a breath for the summer. We'll shift gears for a bit. We'll go in a bit of a different direction, and we'll jump back into it in the fall. And I tell you, where we're going today is like a cliffhanger of cliffhangers as we get ready to take a break for the summer. And so uh, as we do that, we're going to be into some pretty cool stuff today. This is one of those chapters of the Bible that everybody wants to know. What does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? And my answer this morning is I don't know for sure. But we will talk about some different things and we will give you some things to think about and pray into and wrestle with as you head out today. So you might remember back in 2008, the Americans got a new president. President Obama was elected in 2008. And he was the first African-American president to be elected in the United States. And on a Sunday morning once, I was pastoring at a church in Amherstburg at that time. And I said, I don't agree with a lot of Obama's politics. Some of them I do. But a lot of them, as a Christ follower, I just can't get on board with. So I don't agree with, with some of his politics on certain things. But I still want to acknowledge that this is a big deal for African Americans, just with the history, especially in the states of slavery and civil rights and everything that they have gone through down there. This is a big deal. Like I imagine if you're a young African American in America, uh, seeing Obama get elected must have done something profound in you. It was a, a turning point in history. It felt like a big step forward. And so I mentioned that on a Sunday morning. That turned out to be a mistake. And someone in the church came to me afterwards, and they weren't having it. And they said, you know he's probably the Antichrist, right? And I said, well, I, I, I won't say right to that. I don't know. Uh, but why do, you, why do you say that? Well, he believes this, and he believes that, and that's against what God's word says. And I said, well, that's, that's true. But, I mean, lots of leaders in the world also believe those things. So do you think they're all the Antichrist? No, it's going to be him. I did, he's the Antichrist. It's the beginning of the end of religious freedom in America. It's the beginning of the end of the church in North America. Just watch, just watch, just watch. And I thought, well, we'll, we'll see, I guess, right? We'll see. And, and it turned out to not be that, obviously. But I just remember, like, the pushback, and that wasn't the only pushback I got. And, you know, I don't know how you can acknowledge the guy. And I'm saying, well, I'm acknowledging his, his race. I'm acknowledging that part of this, right? Like, I, it turns out, here's the thing. When you're a grown-up, you can hold two conflicting thoughts in your head at the same time. And it's okay. So I can say I don't agree with the politics, but I can also acknowledge that racially this is a big deal for America. Uh, you can do that as a grown-up. And so so uh, it was something that came up from time to time, and, and I have a friend right now, an older gentleman, doesn't go to this church, um, but he was all in that Obama was definitely the Antichrist, and then when Obama left power, he's still all in years later that Obama is the Antichrist, and that he believes that this will come around again, and Obama will become the head of the UN or something, and then he will lead the world into evil, and, uh, and again, the answer is, we'll see, right? We'll see. And so we're getting into that conversation today. This is like, oh, this is the really fun stuff when Revelation starts to get into this. And, and yet, it, this, I just tell this story just to remind us 
that for 2,000 years, Christians have been trying to figure out who is this Antichrist figure that's going to arise at the end times. For 2,000 years, we've been trying to figure this out. And what inevitably happens, what inevitably drives our discernment on this issue is the Antichrist is whoever we don't like at the time. Whoever Christians are opposed to at the time is the person who's probably the Antichrist. And so in the early church, it was as various heretics would rise up in the early church when they were still kind of working out their theology. That person's obviously the Antichrist because we don't like what they're teaching. And then as the Reformation happened, all the Protestants were fully convinced that the Pope was the Antichrist, and the Pope was fully convinced that Martin Luther or one of these other guys was probably the Antichrist. And then it was very clear that probably some of these Islamic caliphates that raised up and these Islamic kings that rose up, they were definitely the Antichrist. And I remember even in my lifetime, uh, I was born just as the Cold War was coming to the end, but it was definitely Gorbachev. Definitely he's the Antichrist. And then maybe Bin Laden and maybe Saddam Hussein and, and whoever else, whoever we don't like at the time, whoever is perceived as an enemy is probably the Antichrist, right? Because it, it wouldn't be one of our people ever. That's, there's no chance of that. And so we're not going to solve the problem of this, obviously, but I do want to dig into what the word says about it. And there's a warning here for us as the people of God. There's a warning here today because part of the message of Revelation is for the church, for the original church that received the message, as well as for us today, is don't fall into the trap that the world is offering. Don't get caught up in, in the empire. Don't get caught up in the culture around you. Stay devoted to Jesus. That's the most important message. And so let's jump into it. Revelation chapter 13, and we're going to plow through the whole thing today. The dragon, we met the dragon last week, and as we talked about last week, no confusion about who the dragon is. John tells us the dragon is the devil. We're talking about Satan here. So the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast." People worshiped the dragon because he'd given authority to the beast, and they also worshiped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed." This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. 
It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. Whew, all right. Beasts and mark of the beast, and this is the really, we're getting into some really interesting stuff today. And so three characters in this chapter, the dragon, the beast from the sea, and the beast from the earth, and they are sometimes called the unholy trinity of Revelation, because there is something in these three creatures that mirrors the holy trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. With Father, Son, and Spirit, God the Father has given authority to the Son, and then the Spirit comes to draw attention to the Son and worship to the sun. These three characters we look at today function similarly, although not in a holy way. The dragon gives authority to the first beast, and then the second beast comes to draw worship to the first beast. It mirrors, to some degree, what the Holy Trinity does. And so much debate, as with all these things that we talk about in Revelation, who are these beasts? Who are these creatures? It's obviously very fanciful language. As we said last week, uh, some of this language is almost Lord Lord of the Rings-like, like it's very much... uh, just nailed down in some imagery and some pictures. And so it is speculated what these two beasts mean, been speculated for 2,000 years. Is this the Antichrist? Is this the Antichrist with the false prophet? Are these demonic powers that are just going to be unleashed? They're just symbolically demonic powers. Do they represent Rome? Do they represent the empire or other empires or one great one world order at the end of time? What do all these things mean? And so we're going to walk through it a little bit and explore some of that today. So it starts with a beast out of the sea, verses 1 and 2. The dragon, Satan, stands on the shore of the sea. Again, this is fanciful imagery. This is not something literally that is going to happen. I saw a beast coming out of the sea. In the Bible, the sea is often symbolized as a place of evil. The deep, it's sometimes called. It's the place uh, sometimes in the Old Testament that's likened to where the enemy dwells and, and where darkness dwells and where death dwells. And so the sea, the waters, when you see those types of words in Scripture, often poetically they are symbolizing just evil the place of evil so i saw a beast coming out of the sea ten horns seven heads ten crowns on its horns and each head had a blasphemous name so this multi-headed thing with lots of crowns the beast i saw resembled a leopard but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion and the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority and so we talked about last week how when jesus rose from the dead jesus said i have all authority all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to to me. And so we are just reminded as we go through this that nothing is happening here that Jesus is not allowing. Jesus is allowing the beast to be given this authority over the earth. And so most often this first beast out of the sea is likened to what we would call the Antichrist, a particularly evil end times figure who is going to rise up, who will be the opposite of Jesus, will be the epitome of everything that is evil. That is the most common interpretation. Now, as we say the 
the word antichrist, we need to be careful because the word antichrist doesn't show up in the book of Revelation at all. It doesn't show up as it relates to the end times at all. That word antichrist never shows up anywhere. The word antichrist shows up in 1 John and 2 John only, and it's used very differently than the way we would normally talk about it. So one example from 1 John 2, 22, who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. So Antichrist, the word just means against Christ, right? Antifreeze in your car, it's an element that's against freezing. So Antichrist means against Christ. Anyone who denies Jesus is the Christ is called Antichrist in Scripture. I was Antichrist for a lot of years in my life until I met Jesus and I was born again. And so if we're being biblically precise... This end times figure is not actually called the Antichrist in Scripture. Antichrist is anyone uh, who would deny that Jesus is the Christ. John would say there are many Antichrists in the world. There are many out there. So that could be anybody. Now that being said, culturally and in terms of of church culture and even the world has this picture of uh, an end times like figure, uh, even if they don't believe it, but they would acknowledge it in terms of Christian theology. We call this person the Antichrist so much, we'll just be okay with it, (laughs) right? We don't want to die on that hill. Uh, If we call that person the Antichrist, everyone knows who you're talking about. So I I did think it was important, hey, if we want to be biblically super precise, Antichrist is anybody, but the Antichrist, as it relates to end times, is just a name that's become so accepted that I'll use that today, and and we can just be uh, kind of aware of that as we go. Now, what the Bible does say about the end times, what the Bible says clearly in 2 Thessalonians is that there will be what it calls a man of lawlessness who rises up at the end. So the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ, will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. So let's pause there. How amazing is that? That the most evil being that has ever been, the most evil human, the epitome of everything that is ungodly, and Jesus is going to show up and go, just by showing up, Jesus will overthrow him. By the splendor, just by Jesus walking into the room, this fullness of evil will be overthrown. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. And so even back to the book of Daniel, Daniel in his prophetic visions had an anticipation of a particularly evil man rising up as as time was unfolding. And so this was already in place even before the New Testament in Jewish theology. And so Paul's tying into that here and saying, yes, there will be one particularly evil person that rises up. And so the question is, is this beast that we are talking about the same thing? Is the beast the man of lawlessness? Is it the same thing? And my answer is, I don't know. But it's very, very possible. And that would be a very, very easy and clear line to draw, for sure. 
And so we talked about uh, regularly in Revelation, as we're engaging with the imagery of Revelation, as we are seeing, you know, monsters, as we're seeing dragons, as we're seeing different things, one of the things we always want to ask is, is there an Old Testament connection to this? Because almost all of the imagery in Revelation has a very clear connection to something in the Old Testament. And so even if we read, well, beast out of the sea, I don't know what that means, but if it has an Old Testament connection, we can go back and look at that Old Testament connection. It's going to help us understand what this is all about. And so there is a very clear Old Testament connection to the beast that comes out of the sea in Revelation 13, and it is from Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision of four beasts coming out of the sea. He sees a lion and a bear and a leopard and then just a terrifying beast. It doesn't name what it is. And so right away, anyone in the first century who knew their Bible, who was reading this letter from John that they got, went, oh, the beast that John talks about in Revelation also has a picture of a bear and a lion and a leopard. It's all mashed up in one particular beast. Daniel saw them as four different beasts. But in Daniel chapter 7, I don't know if there's a scholar out there uh, who doesn't acknowledge that Daniel's vision, these different beasts represented different empires. That one beast represented the Babylonian Empire, that one beast represented the Persian Empire, that one beast represented the Greek Empire, and the final terrifying beast represented the Roman Empire. And God was speaking to Daniel, here's what Israel's going to go through. Empire after empire is going to come, and they are going to take over Israel, and you'll be subject to them. And yet in that terrifying beast, that final Roman Empire, the Messiah is going to come. The one who's going to turn everything around is going to come. So it was actually a message of hope. And so Daniel's beasts would have been right in the mind of anybody in the first century reading this for the first time. They would say, oh, John saw a beast that was a lion and a leopard and a bear all mashed up together. That sounds an awful lot like Daniel's vision. The details are a bit different. And so for anyone reading that, they would have made the connection to Daniel 7 and say, okay, this is about empire. There is something in this uh, beast of the sea that is about empire because Daniel's beasts were all about different empires. They were about different kings. And in Daniel 7, again, Daniel also anticipated an antichrist-like figure, a particularly uh, evil ruler who was going to come in these empires who ultimately would end up in a lake of fire. Daniel saw that long before Revelation saw that. And so that connection's helping us understand a little bit. So it's probably something we would dismiss, like that this is just a symbolic thing or these are demonic powers. It's connected to empire. There is something about the beast of the sea that is connected to empire. And so there is a reminder for us, and this is the case all through Revelation, and uh, it's a bit tricky in North America because we're so steeped in our democracy and we, we value our democracy so much, but one of the messages of Revelation is the empire is not the church's friend. And it was particularly not so at that time because it was the Roman Empire and they were going after them. Now we live in a place where Canada is friendly to the church, uh, right? We, we have freedoms and we have, we have rights and we have blessings. And as we've often said, even during COVID, the church has had more rights than lots of other businesses and similar organizations. And so we are in a very friendly country. Whether that lasts forever, we don't know. But right now, we are in a very friendly place. But the warning of Revelation is the empire will always be there and there will always be a tendency for the empire to corrupt the church. Because the empire also influences the culture. And there 
there will always be an opportunity for the culture to corrupt the church. And so the call in Revelation is stay strong, endure, don't give in, don't be influenced. Jesus is Lord, stay centered there, be faithful. And so there is something about this beast that is connected to empire, and they would have seen that very clearly. A little more clues will help us understand as well. Verse 3 and 4, one of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he'd given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast who can wage war against it? And that's a direct uh, contradiction to worship from the Psalms that would say, who is like the Lord? Who is like him? Uh, They are saying, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? And so this beast has all these heads with all these crowns, and all of these uh, heads have a name on them, a blasphemous name. And so it's kind of this multi-headed dragon-like creature. And again, reading in the first century and understanding that connection to empire that we just talked about, the first century readers probably would have said, oh, these heads represent the different emperors of Rome, the different kings, the different Caesars of Rome, because these Caesars often claimed to be God, and they often demanded worship as God. And there were actually temples erected to go and worship the Caesar who was in power at the time as a God. And so again, reading in the first century, they probably would have said, oh, well, we have seen a number of kings over the time, a number of Roman kings who call themselves God, who demand worship. And so this beast probably would have been landing for them, not just as empire, like the Roman empire, but probably the emperor, the emperor who demanded people acknowledge him as God, the emperor who who called people to worship. And even though the emperor at the time hadn't taken over literally the entire planet, uh, the emperor at the time had taken over kind of the known world, the civilized world at the time. All the nations around Israel had fallen to Rome, and Rome was demanding allegiance, was demanding worship, the emperor was demanding worship. And so they are almost certainly in the first century interpreting this beast as Caesar as the king, whoever that is. And there had been a lot of them. So it wasn't just about one king who was doing this. A lot of them had done that. And another thing that's interesting is that one of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. And so there had been an emperor not long before Revelation was written, uh, just briefly before that, Emperor Nero. And Emperor Nero was the first one to do really widespread Christian persecution. He was the one who used to hang Christians in his garden and crucify them and light them on fire for candlelight when he was having feasts. Like, he was just a monstrous man, a horrible man. And he had persecuted the Christians terribly. Now, he had died by the time Revelation has been written, but there was a rumor in the Roman world that he was going to be resurrected. There was a rumor that he was coming back. There was a rumor that he would live again. And that was something, obviously, that didn't ever happen. But that was what was floating out there. So again, in the first century, they would have known what that head that was wounded that had seemed to come back to life, they would have known what that meant. They would have said, that sounds a lot like Nero. And whether they literally believed Nero was going to come back to life or not, they probably didn't. But that was just such a, a known thing in the culture that that's exactly what that would have meant to them. That, that wounded head recovered would have sounded an awful lot like Nero. So again, not just about Rome. The beast wasn't just about Rome to the first century. It was about the emperor. And the multi-headed crowns and everything were just probably representing the emperor in general. Uh, And so we wouldn't say the first beast is probably just a power or probably just the empire. One more clue to help us out there is Revelation 13, 18. This is the last uh, verse, which we're jumping ahead to for a minute. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the 
number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. So when you see 666, sometimes people go like, oh, like that's the devil's number, right? That's the demonic number. No, it's, it's man's number. It's the number of a man. And so a lot of scholars believe that, remember like back in school when we were learning about letters and numbers and sometimes we would get a fun activity with like a code where it's like A equals one, B equals two, C equals three, and then they'd give you a bunch of numbers and you'd have to fill in the right letter and it would be kind of a coded message and it would spell out something in English. A lot of scholars think there's something like that going on with the 666 and some versions of the Bible say 616 and that those particular numbers numerically represent letters, and those letters spell out the word Nero. And so 666 is representative of Nero. Uh, the mark of the beast is Nero, which again doesn't need to necessarily mean the literal man who was going to come back from the dead as much as it represented the emperor who demanded worship and killed a bunch of Christians. And so I think all of that together suggests to me that certainly in the first century, I think it would have been very clear that for them reading it, they would have known, they wouldn't be thinking, oh, down the road, there's going to be some futuristic one world order and this futuristic antichrist-like figure. They were living that at the time. For them reading it at the time, they would have been saying, oh, the beast is clearly probably the emperor. That's, that is the one who is demanding worship as a god. That is the one who is persecuting the Christians. That is the one who there are consequences if you don't worship him. Uh, so that's how they would have read it. Now, the problem is, is that some of the things uh, that the man of lawlessness and things talk about in Scripture didn't happen. Jesus didn't come back, right, at the time of the emperor. That didn't happen. And so verse 5 through 8, um, I won't read all of this now, but the beast uh, just blasphemes, is given power for a season, uh, blasphemes God, heaven, those who live in heaven, uh, is given the power to wage war against God's holy people. And Daniel had seen that as well uh, in his end times vision, that there will be a time when it looks like the beast is winning. There'll be a time when it looks like um, that, that there is a, a conquering happening. That's not how the story is going to end. But everyone in the world gets drawn to the worship of the beast. Everyone except those who have had their names written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb slain from the creation of the world. That is the plan for his salvation being slain from long before uh, any creation happened. God knew what he was doing. And so all of this was happening to a certain extent in the world that the first century where uh, they were getting this letter for the first time. They were seeing this and they were understanding this in their worldview because the letter was written to them. And so they were living in a world where the emperor demanded worship. They were living in a world where the emperor had conquered the known world at the time. They were living in a world where uh, they were being persecuted and it felt like they were being conquered. So that's how they are reading this. Now, Jesus didn't come back. And throughout history, there have been a lot of other beast-like creatures who have risen up. There have been kings, and there have been leaders of empires, and there have been those who persecuted God's people. And everyone wondered, is this that man of lawlessness? Is this that end times person? And we just read in 2 Thessalonians that there will be one particularly evil person who will rise up at the end and who Jesus will overthrow at the second coming. And so as we've talked about Revelation, this is where it gets tricky because we've talked about there are different ways that we approach 
approach this book. There are preterists, and they believe that the book of Revelation primarily was fulfilled in the first century. It was primarily a message to the first century church, and not everything was fulfilled yet, but that's what it was about. And then there are futurists, and that's probably what most of us were taught growing up, which is to say Revelation is primarily about the future, things that are going to happen at the end times. And then there are idealists who believe that Revelation is just a great metaphor. It's not about specific events, but it's just a big story about the battle between good and evil. And then there are historicists who believe that Revelation started in the first century and it's been unfolding ever since. We've been in it this whole time. And I said to my wife this week, I said, oh, I kind of want to create like a fifth way that puts all of those together because I think there's value in all of them and we'll call it Meadowbrookism or something like that. But an approach that says we can't understand this book without the first century context. Like we, we just can't. And there's obviously things in the book like the second coming that are yet to come in the future. And yet there are also things that seem to be happening at the same time. So the beast had a very clear meaning for the first century people, right? This is the emperor. This is who we're dealing with. And yet we also understand there will be a man of lawlessness who will be the worst one ever, who shows up at the end of time. And yet there have always been beast-like creatures, beast-like uh, leaders who have risen up over time. And so our job is what is the Spirit saying to us right now? And what the Spirit was saying to them in the first century as it relates to the emperor, what the Spirit will be saying to us with a man of lawlessness at the end, and what the Spirit is going to be saying to us all the time in between is don't follow the beast. Right? And we won't know for sure, probably, if any leader that rises up is the beast until Jesus returns. But like when Hitler arose to power, everyone thought he was the beast. Everybody thought he was the Antichrist. Not right away, uh, but over time, as, as the depths of his evil became more and more known. Um, understandably, right? And I mean, he didn't literally call for people to worship him as God, but there was certainly a cult of personality that raised him to this godlike figure, this godlike uh, calling. And as he was there for whatever purpose God had him there and, and whatever God was working out in the world, as Hitler is living out what he feels like he's supposed to be doing, it included, of course, trying to wipe God's people off the face of the earth. And we know now through history, through the lens of you know, documents and diaries and things that have come out, is that he, his first plan was to destroy the Jewish people. His second plan was to destroy the church. And as he came to power, he needed the church. He needed their help. And so how does a monster like this rise up? How does Hitler come to power? The answer was he was incredibly popular and he was democratically elected. And how was he elected? One reason was because Christians supported him in huge numbers. Now, he didn't stand up at that first election and say, here's my plan for the Jewish people. Like, he wasn't talking that way at that point. But he won over the majority of German Christians, and he won them over by saying, hey, I'm going to have power. I'll share that power with you. Jewish people are out to get all of us. I'm going to protect you, and I'll protect your religious freedoms, and I will, I will be on your side. I will be an ally for you. And with promises, he deceived them. Now, over time, they would begin to see what he was really like, and those things would begin to change. But the church at the beginning, the majority of German Christians were all in with Adolf Hitler. And if that sounds crazy, it is crazy. But that's the warning for us as well. Because I, I just have to believe that a lot of those Christians read their Bible and, and were devoted to Jesus. And let's not get on a high horse. We haven't been in that scenario where we've had to make that choice. But with his promises of power and support, he was able to deceive them and win them over. And there was, at the beginning, a small group, Karl Barth and Bonhoeffer and others who resisted. That group got bigger as the war unfolded. But 
As Hitler rises to power, the Christians were deceived. And so part of our job in, in reading the story of Revelation is, okay, how do we make sure we're not deceived? How do we make sure we're not? How do we make sure we don't fall into that trap? Because uh, there will always be leaders like this. One of them eventually will be the man of lawlessness. That's the thing about even saying, like, is it Obama? Like, if we all just keep guessing, we're going to be right eventually, right? Like, one of, these, one of these leaders will eventually be the man of lawlessness. Even the stop clock is right twice a day uh, if we just keep firing things out there. But with Hitler, I mean, it really looked like the end of the world, right? World War II really looked like the end of the world. There had never been a persecution against Israel to that level of that horror. And yet, a lot of Christians were on his side. And so the warning of Revelation is, the beast is not your friend. The empire is not your friend. Political power is not your friend. Don't get caught up in the things of this world. And so as the beast rises up in our text today, as the dragon uh, gives it authority, as the people honor it as a god and worship the beast and bow down, uh, the message to the first century was don't give in to that pressure, church. Church of Ephesus, Church of Philadelphia, Church of Smyrna, don't bow your knee to the emperor. Don't bow your knee to the empire. Don't let the culture around you corrupt you. Stay devoted to Jesus. And at the time that Revelation was written, emperor worship was very much becoming a dividing line in the culture. It was definitely something where you, you were either on the emperor's side or you, won't, you weren't. And if you weren't worshiping the emperor, there were consequences to that. And we've talked about those in the seven letters, that no one would buy from you. Nobody would trade with you. There were economic consequences. There were social consequences. There were persecution consequences if you didn't worship the emperor. And so the message is don't bow your knee to that beast. And so in terms of us figuring out what we do with that today, how does that apply to us? The message is the same, is that we need to be very, very careful how we entangle with worldly political powers. And it's a bit tricky in our democracy because we value our democracy so much. But where Christians sort of become a voting block, right? Right-wing evangelical Christians become a powerhouse, especially in the states, in terms of voting somebody in. We need to be wary of any politician who's making promises, any politician who's trying to win us over, because they want something from us as well. And Anabaptists have always actually been pretty good at this in saying, you know, we're not going to get entangled with worldly politics. We, we are all about a different kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is our main focus. A lot of Anabaptists won't vote for that reason. They'll say we're not going to entangle ourselves with the world because any time in church history when the world and the church get together, any time when earthly government and Christians get together, it always goes badly. Like, theoretically, you would think, oh, salt and light will invade the government and take over, uh, but the exact opposite has happened every single time in human history. The corruption and power of the government takes over the church. And when church and state really marry themselves together, you get things like the Crusades, you get things like the Spanish Inquisition, you get things like Salem witch, tri witch trials. You get things like heretics being executed and burned at the stake because you're a Catholic and I'm a Protestant, so we need to murder you. Uh, and the state's given us the power to do that. Like they, it has been said that when church and state get into bed together, they produce really horrific babies. The offspring, the fruit of it is not good. 
And so it is not anywhere that I can see in the New Testament that we're told that our goal is to take over government as Christians. We are warned against government. One day, the governments of this world will become the governments of Jesus Christ, but he's the one who's going to do that. And that's not to say that we can't have a Christian leader or that we necessarily shouldn't get involved and be salt and light everywhere that we go. But when Jesus came, they were expecting him to be a political leader. They were expecting him to kick the Romans out. They were expecting him to take charge, and he actually does like the exact opposite of any of those things. He humbles himself, and he lowers himself, and he lets the state execute him, and he does all of that out of service to the kingdom of God. And so it's not that we can't be involved in earthly politics, but there is such a warning there for us that the empire ultimately isn't our friend. There's always going to be the tendency for the church to get corrupted if we get too cozy with political power. And I will tell you this. I will say this now. I was alarmed by some... I'm saying this very carefully. I was alarmed by some of the Christian support for Donald Trump. I was alarmed by some of it. I'm not talking about agreeing with his positions. I agree with a lot of his positions. Uh, I'm not talking about supporting him or voting for him because you got to support and vote for somebody. But I was concerned in the second election especially by what I was hearing coming from preachers that I admire and ministries that I respected where things were being said like, if you are a Christian, you must vote for Donald Trump. I was alarmed by things that I heard one preacher say, this is the mark of your maturity in Christ, whether you vote for Trump or not. And I went, that's horrifying. That's horrifying. And again, I'm not talking about supporting Trump. I'm talking about language like that, where it's like, you know, the mark of your maturity in Christ, not the fruit of your life, not the sacrifice for the kingdom, not your prayer life or your devotion to him, but how you vote for a secular political position, that that was being likened to Christian maturity. That was alarming to me. Alarm bells were going off. And it's one thing to say, hey, his views are the closest to my views, and so I support him. It's a whole other thing to say, like, hey, this is like tied into whether you go to heaven or not, Right? Because we go to heaven because of Jesus. It had something to do with Jesus, I thought. It didn't have anything to do, I think, with a secular political position. And so I just, again, I think there's a warning there about let's be careful how we are engaging with earthly politics. If that's taking most of our attention, we're doing it wrong. We're supposed to be about another kingdom. We're supposed to be about another king. And when preachers were saying Trump will be the savior of the church in America, Biden will be the one who destroys the church in America, I just thought, we already have a savior. We don't need another one, right? And and as this antichrist-like figure rises up, however that person rises up, there's nowhere anywhere that suggests that we're supposed to, like, pick up our swords and fight back. There's nowhere that suggests that we are supposed to take a stand and and in a violent way repel this person, as some people have suggested. And as we get into the text, there's kind of a a fatalism to it in verse 9 and 10. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. And so it's not, I mean... That's not great news, right, in terms of preserving your life here on earth. But our hope, of course, is that our life here on earth isn't the main thing. 
that as beasts rise up, as the emperor rose up in the first century, as Hitler rose up, as the man of lawlessness at the end rises up, there will be Christians who are put in captivity. There will be Christians who are killed. And the call is, hey, God is doing something here. And, And if that is what he has called you to, then that is what he has called you to. The book of Revelation makes really clear that Jesus is the one who's going to deal with the beast. Jesus is the one in his return who will deal with the man of lawlessness. Jesus is the one who will do that. He is the one who is overseeing all of it. And so this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. That our job is to patiently endure the trial. And our job is to, to, I mean, that's good advice in any trial. To patiently endure and to continue to be faithful. A second beast rises up. We won't take as much time with this one. Verse 11 and 12. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And so this is sometimes called uh, the false prophet, if this is a a human being, that uh, in futurist language that there's the antichrist and there's the false prophet, and the false prophet is typically pictured as a religious type figure who draws the worship to the beast. It's also been suggested that um, in the first century especially, if the first beast represents the emperor, the second beast probably represents more just the religious system, just the, the, the false religious beliefs, the false religious system where they had priests and they had temples and they had different things and they were all there to draw attention to the first beast they were draw there to draw attention to the emperor and so it could be one or the other um the second beast is uh less clear probably there's less connections to the old testament like the first beast is but uh either way whether it's a singular person whether it's a system its job is to draw attention and worship to the beast and there's a warning there that goes beyond just this uh, particular topic it says that the second beast looked like a lamb but spoke like a dragon looked like a lamb but spoke like a dragon. There was something uh, about the the appearance of it that seemed very okay, seemed very approachable, uh, and yet the words coming out of its mouth were like a dragon. And so even with Hitler, and I'm going to keep coming back to Hitler as we go through this, just because uh, so many Christians got deceived, and we need to make sure that we are not deceived for any leader who rises up, is that even though at the beginning Hitler wasn't saying we're going to load up all the Jews on cattle cars and send them off to camps, His anti-Jewish rhetoric was there real early, like really early it was there. And you would have thought some of the Christians would have said, well, wait a minute, like we're, Israel's our brother and we're supposed to, you know, we're part of the same family and we're supposed to love and support them and pray for them and bless them. Uh, And that got missed in all of it. And so the words of the second beast betray itself. It looks like a lamb, but the the enemy's words are coming out of its mouth. And so that's a good help for us as we are discerning anything in this area, whether it's a world leader or whether it's a church leader or whether it's anyone in our lives, that Jesus said, out of the overflow of our heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of our heart. And we can trick people for a while, like we can control our words to a certain extent and try to spin things a certain way. Ultimately, our words ultimately betray what's going on inside. 
It's ultimately whatever's going on in our heart will start to show up in our words. That's what Jesus said. And so in the first century, for anyone looking for this second beast-like creature, it would have been, okay, we're looking for someone who looks like a lamb but talks like a dragon. We're going to pay attention to words, and that's exactly what Jesus said we should be doing. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Eventually, whatever's going on in our heart starts to show up. And so we want to pay very close attention to the words people are speaking and not just the spin they're putting on them, but what is coming, what is the root, what is the heart of these things. In Matthew 7, 15 and 16, Jesus, talking about false prophets, said, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. So there will be some in our lives who come, and again, they look like sheep, but there is something scary underneath. But Jesus gives us a clue here. Look at their fruit. Look at the fruit of their lives. And we have to walk a careful line here when it comes to judgment because Jesus tells us not to judge, and yet there are also verses like this where we are supposed to judge. In a certain sense, you judge their fruit. And if someone is claiming a level of godliness, like Hitler never proclaimed to be a Christian, but he said enough kind of vague religious language about God or about providence that people sort of felt like, oh, he's a Christian, he's one of us. Uh, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And so we need to be looking at anybody in our lives again and saying not just what do they look like, but what is the fruit that we can see? Is there fruit of the Spirit here? Is there a devotion to Jesus that is measurable? How's their marriage? How are their, how's their parenting? Let's look at the fruit of their lives. And that will help us determine whether someone is truly of God, walking with God in step with the Holy Spirit. The second beast, verse 13, performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. Could be literal um, and could just be a symbol of uh, just the power behind this thing and idolatry in general. So yeah, there might literally be an image that comes that can breathe and stuff. I think even with technology today, that wouldn't seem that weird, right? And so um, as we go through this and as we look at... Um, Again, where are we drawing lines between literal and symbolic? I think it's best to approach Revelation primarily symbolically. And so I would just read into this that whatever the second beast is, whether it's a person or whether it's a religious system or whatever, uh, there is power there. There is some kind of power that is impressive, and it is drawing attention in an idolatrous way to the second beast. And we have seen uh, even from my uh, things jumping all over the place, Mike. Even from the very beginning when Egypt is happening and Moses is bringing the people out of Egypt, uh, the, there are magicians in Egypt who have some power, right? The first few things that Moses does to show the power of God, the Egyptian magicians are able to duplicate. They are able to show it for a little while, not permanently. And so there is demonic power that is real, um, and it looks like God's power, apparently, to some people. And so we want to be watchful for that as well. Almost done. Verse 16 and 17, it also forced all people great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. 
And so this is the one that everybody gets up in arms about, right? Of what is this mark going to be? Anytime the government does anything new, it's always assumed that that's going to be the mark somehow. Uh, there's been a lot of conversation in COVID about are our masks part of the mark of the beast? Are the vaccines part of the mark of the beast? Is there a microchip that's coming in our hand or whatever? And every once in a while, someone will send me an article about how they're, you know, perfecting technology so that eventually we'll just be able to put our thumbs on things and pay for things that way. Is that the mark? of the beast. And, and it's understandable. We don't want to do that. The Bible says later that the ones with the mark of the beast are the ones who are going to hell. And so we don't want the mark of the beast, right? That part is easy, right? <laughs> Let's just be clear on that. We don't want the mark of the beast. So what is this thing? Uh, is there a literal, you know, is it going to be a microchip here? Is it going to be a tattoo on our forehead like some people have speculated? And again, I think it's really bad Bible study to switch back and forth between literal and symbolic while you're in the middle of the same passage. And so no one reading Revelation 13 is saying we literally expect a monster is going to walk out of the ocean and everyone's going to see this monster. No one is reading it saying the earth's going to open and a second monster is going to come out with a big dragon there. We understand those as symbols. And so I don't know why in a clearly symbolic passage, we would all of a sudden say, but the mark of the beast, definitely literal. Watch out for the tattoo that it's going to happen there. I think it's best to understand it symbolically. And the Bible helps us to do that. So here's what the Old Testament says for God's people. Deuteronomy 6, 8. Tie God's commandments as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. And so some literally do this. The Pharisees literally did this, and Orthodox Jews will still literally do this today. They're called phylacteries. They take scripture, little scripture verses, put them in these boxes, they tie them around their heads, and they tie them around their arms. Now, most Jewish people believe Deuteronomy 6.8 is meant more symbolically, that take God's word, fill your head with it, and let your hands do the work. It's a symbol of fill your head and fill your hands with obedience to God's commandment. But this is something that marks God's people. God's people are marked with his commandments on their heads and on their arms. So when this beast shows up, this beast also is marking his people with something on their heads and something on their arms. It is something that is connected, I think, to this passage in Deuteronomy. But the whole thing, this is the most important thing, the mark of the beast is all about allegiance. It's all about who do you worship. It's all about who do you follow. That is what it is about. It is not just about, I mean, if a technology comes where we can use our thumb to buy something, I mean, that's not that different than what we do now, right, when we tap a card. And so it's not just about buying and selling. That's often what people focus in on, but that's not really the point. The point is, who do you follow? And in the first century, there was a very clear line being drawn that says, do you worship Christ or do you worship the emperor? And God's people are marked by God's word. God's word fills our minds. God's word fills our actions. And there is something else going on as well in the first century, and this will help us understand too, is that I really think there is at least a part of this mark of the beast that's already happened in history. And that is in the first century when emperor worship was a very real thing, you were expected as a citizen to regularly go to the temple and offer worship, literally. You would light incense, and that was your offering of worship to the emperor emperor as God. Now, as you went and did that, the priest would give you a piece of paper that was signed that said, John did his emperor worship today. And then when John goes to the grocery store and he's picking up groceries, before they will let him buy anything, they will say, can we see your documentation, please? Did you worship the emperor today? John would show them the paper. 
And if John has a business where he's selling something, anyone who's going to interact with him wants to see the proof. So it was a legally required document to buy or sell. You had to prove that you worship the emperor. So again, in the first century, no one reading this letter from John for the first time would be thinking, oh, one day down the road, there's going to be some great leader who rises up and the whole world will worship them and there's going to literally be a mark that controls whether you buy or sell. In the first century, they would have been saying, oh, this is what we're living out right now. We see an emperor who demands worship and demands to be called God. We can't buy or sell unless we worship the emperor as God. They were living that out. And so I think the mark of the beast has already happened. Does that mean that it won't happen again? No, I think it certainly could happen again. That certainly could be part of it. And if we're going to be watchful for it, the most important thing for us to realize is that, again, it's not about literally something on your hand. It's not about literally what's connected to buying and selling. It's about literally where is your allegiance. So, no, it's not getting snuck into the COVID vaccine. If the COVID vaccine made you sign something saying Trudeau is Lord or something, then we should be alarmed at that point a little bit. But it's not something that gets snuck in. It's about who are you pledging yourself to. It has nothing to do with the masks. I know some of you have brought up the concern that, well, if you can't go into the grocery store without a mask, isn't that kind of like this where you can't buy something if you don't do this? And it's like, well, that's a public health thing. You can't go in the grocery store shirtless either. And we're not all freaking out about that. So it has nothing to do with that. It's about who who do you worship? Who do you follow? We live in a, a time right now where we worship Jesus freely, and there is nothing that stops us from worshiping Jesus. There is nothing that pulls us in a different direction. In the first century, a very clear line was being drawn. Do you worship the emperor, or do you worship Jesus? That may come for us as well. The man of lawlessness may rise up in our lifetime, and it may, you know, as this person rises up, I imagine in our world now, it'll probably be more like a Hitler. They'll probably be democratically elected. They'll probably be very appealing. There'll be a lot about them that looks really, really good, and we're going to watch for, okay, well, what are the words coming out of this person's mouth? What is the fruit of their lives? And we're just going to remember that we are ultimately about a different kingdom. The empire is not ultimately our friend. So we don't need to freak out about every little thing being the, the mark of the beast. And what about this? What about that? It's about who do you follow? If that is going to circle around in history and show up again, it'll be about who do you worship? Who do you follow? And that is the mark of the beast that we should be aware of. And with that, we're coming to the end of Revelation 13. What a way to end, right? For like a few months. What a cliffhanger. Everything is at its darkest. I didn't plan it this way at all, but it's really good storytelling in a way, right? To leave people wanting more. What happens next? We've just come into this very dark thing. And so we know how the story ends. And as we wrap up today, I'm going to actually go back to Daniel chapter 7. Because Daniel chapter 7 was about empires rising up. It was about an antichrist-like figure rising up. And Daniel actually ends his chapter 7 with a bit more hope than Revelation chapter 13. So Daniel says in 7 verse 13 and 14, in my vision at night, he's seen the beasts, he's seen the antichrist. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. 
That's how the story ends. Spoiler alert. That's where we will go as we come back in the fall. Come on up, worship team, as we get ready to wrap up. And as we are uh, pondering all these things, as we are wrestling through all this stuff, I know this is heavy stuff. Um, it's also just fascinating stuff. But as we talk about, all right, what do we do? What do we learn from this? How do we thrive? As our theme for the year has said, how do we thrive in all of this? We will thrive, first of all, when we understand and put earthly authority in its proper place, in its proper place. And so the Bible says that God has put earthly authorities over us, that we are to honor them and to submit to them. If they call us to break God's commandments, then we will, we will wrestle through that and we will follow after the Lord ultimately. But we will put earthly authority in their proper place. Ultimately, we're not on the same team. And there may be a Christ follower there who is on our team, but ultimately we are about a different kingdom. And, and that's, that's part of our struggle in a democracy because politics is everything in our culture. It dominates everything. And it's not that we can't be engaged. It's not that we shouldn't pay attention. But that should not ever be our main focus. We are about a different kingdom and we are about a different king. If you were bummed out that Trump didn't win and he's not in power right now, that's okay. Grieve that for a couple of days and then we move on with our lives because Jesus is Lord. And ultimately, who's in power doesn't matter nearly as much as the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and all of our hope is there. So we will thrive there. We will thrive when we are wary about entangling with earthly politics in an ungodly way. Again, the appeal will always be if we partner with earthly politics, we will have more power and influence. History has proven that that has never worked. Ultimately, the corruption of the government starts to seep into the church and it ends up going in a not great direction. We will thrive, whatever our trial, government, end times, whatever, when we endure patiently, as John calls us to. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. That's good advice in any trial. I am patiently enduring. I am being faithful on my part, but I am ultimately looking to the Lord to change this. I am looking to the Lord for deliverance. I'm not looking to any person for that. I look to him and him alone. We will also thrive, and I'll end on this just because this has been a, a tough passage today. We'll thrive when we don't overthink it, right? One of the concerns with Revelation is that we can get so caught up in the what ifs and what about this and what about that and this symbol and that symbol that we actually just miss the simplicity of what the Spirit is saying to us. If you have one takeaway from today, what's the Spirit saying to the church? It's that, hey, be on the lookout for those leaders. Um, but we also don't need to live our whole lives terrified over, over whatever may come. Ultimately, we are all about a different kingdom, and we are all about a different king. And we know how this story ends. And so we are going to worship him to that end this morning. We know ultimately where the victory is. And so uh, while we look to the past, while we look to the present, while we look to the future, we are fixed on Jesus always. And we are honoring him as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So would you stand with me, please, today? And at home as well, you can crank up your volume. Join with us in worship this morning.